This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Education, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Trevor Matea, one of your hosts on the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Matt Raffalo about his book, Digital Divisions, How Schools Create Inequality in the Tech Era. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'd like to begin our conversation by having you tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, I am a sociologist by training, and I study uh, digital inequality in education, uh, youth culture, and uh, organizations and organizational culture. And uh, I have two appointments. I am a social scientist at Google, at YouTube specifically, and I'm also a visiting scholar at UC Berkeley's uh, Center for Science, Technology, Medicine, and Society. And tell us a little bit about the research you did for this book. How did this project come about? Sure, yeah. I mean, you know, I think a lot of research that people do is personal. I think for me, when I was a little kid, I was pretty obsessed with technology, but this was at a time when it wasn't really very cool or normal to be uh, into technology. It kind of labeled you as a geek. Um, but, you know, I persisted nonetheless and um, followed my interests and had the support of my, my, my parents and my family to do so. But, you know, growing up and, you know, as an adult, I've really watched, as everybody has, um, the world adopting digital technologies literally everywhere. And so um, I also come from a family of educators. And so it just seemed kind of natural to want to know how young people in schools were using all these digital technologies and to what effects. So what I did is uh, I used a methodological approach called comparative ethnographic methods, which is, if you imagine kind of like what anthropologists do where they go into a particular part of the world and, you know, spend a lot of time getting to know the people and the environment and what life is like day to day. That's pretty much what I did. I I did a comparative ethnographic study of three middle schools, uh, and I picked these middle schools because they were all really rich in technology availability. They each had tons of technology available at their disposal. And uh, I really kind of wanted to get at what it would be like, this kind of utopic view that we sometimes hope schools can achieve where there's tons of technology everywhere where the divide is really closed. 
And what, but, but importantly, the schools were different in terms of their demographics. So even though technology was widely available, the race, ethnicity, and class of the student populations really differed. And so I spent a lot of time in these schools to try to get at, you know, well, what would happen if technology was available uh, in the way that it, it was, but student populations differed. As a former elementary school teacher, I always like to ask people, what are their school experiences that sort of shaped how they think about school, um, what they're looking for, the types of questions they ask when they visit schools? So um, were there any experiences you had as a student that, that most shaped you? Yeah, that's a great question. And I mean, I think to be frank, I had a I didn't have a really fun time in middle school. It was a pretty, I had a pretty tough go of it. And I think um, part of it was that I felt like the environment that I was in, you know, a lot of people say middle schools, oh, it's tough for everybody. Um, and certainly, you know, the environment where I was at was not, it was, it, it wasn't really a fun place for everybody. It wasn't just me. And so I think, you know, as I grew up, as I got really into sociology and social sciences and wanted to learn more about schooling, it just became clear to me that schools are really not all the same. Like they are so, they can be so different. And so um, something that's kind of motivated all of my work when I talk to teachers is just to try to get at just what is it like on the job for them? Like what, what, how does it differ between schools and what are the challenges and opportunities uh, of teaching that they face day to day? I think, I think that's really shaped my perspective to try to get at just what, you know, not assuming that schools are all kind of unique, you know, uh, uh, patterned in the same ways, but really getting at like how they're different. And so that's, that's, that's kind of been a foundational approach for me, at least, in understanding uh, school life. Can you tell us a little bit about what people mean when they refer to a digital divide? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think, uh, I think to most people, when they think of the digital divide, they're thinking of digital access. So does a school have technology or or, or do they not have a lot of technology? Is the, is the technology high quality or is it, you know, have a lot of maintenance issues? Something that scholars of digital technology actually argue though, is that there's not just one digital divide. There's actually three divides, which sounds kind of crazy, but um, there are really three distinct aspects of digital inequities that map out day to day uh, in schools. The first being digital access. That's what we call digital divide one. The second digital divide is digital skills. So that's, you know, do people have digital skills or not to be able to use digital technologies? And interestingly, um, I think people think less often of teachers not having digital skills, but, you know, it's not just students, you know, everybody at the school needs to have um, some familiarity with using digital tools to make use of them in the classroom. And the third digital divide, which is what, what I study in this book, what I'm most interested personally, is if everybody has certain technologies available to them, does that mean that they're used equally? 
um, as I find that, you know, actually another divide is unequal uses of the same digital tools, that even if, you know, schools have technology available to them, um, there are things like racial biases or class biases that shape very different approaches to using the same tools that can lead to inequities. How do you think uh, the three digital divides intersect with uh, the notion of an achievement or an opportunity gap between different cohorts of students? I think that the concepts are similar in that they're trying to get at inequities, but I do think that practically they refer to somewhat different things. So, you know, the achievement gap, I think, pretty narrowly refers to whether certain student populations um, consistently do well in school versus others. Um, I think the opportunity gap is probably a better analogy just because Opportunity gap, I think, broadly means whether certain life circumstances of students, like whether you're raised in a particular zip code or inhabit a particular racial ethnic group, is associated with certain privileges or opportunities or setbacks, you know, for, for different reasons. I think, I think what's most important with all these different terms, though, is you know, not just whether certain students have advantages or not, but also why. So, for, for example, what I think ties it all together is like, okay, well, students have different outcomes, but what, what, are, what are the driving factors of them insofar as technology matters? Well, technology is available at each of the schools I studied, but the reasons why they're used so differently and in ways that lead to inequities has to do with race and class stereotyping um, and teachers' workplace conditions. So um, I think that all these terms can be really helpful in showing that they're, that students have different experiences, but they, I do think they always must be coupled, coupled with, you know, like, why do we see these differences? Um, uh, that's, that's kind of my take on, on the question. And so I can imagine, uh some well-intentioned people who work for tech companies like Apple or Google or Facebook might think uh, we need to get our technology in the hands of students. We need to provide access and then teach skills. And then we'll see uh, people in, over time uh, having the same opportunities. As a teacher, my first thought is, well, maybe very little of this actually has to do with technology, but there are things that exist outside of school that play a disproportionate role on how students do in, in schools, however you measure it. Um, and, and things are much bigger than merely access and skills. I, I'd like to hear more from you about wh what you think can be done in the area of technology in school that can actually uh, make a difference. Yeah, I think it's, it's a really big question. And it's a really important one. I think and I think you can think of addressing it from a number of different angles. I think on the one hand, um, you know, I think tech companies increasingly should and do bring in teachers and students and their families as part of the design process of their technologies to make sure that they're actually useful to them. So that's kind of one piece of it on the development of the technologies. But I think what you're alluding to is that rather than, you know, throwing technology at a school as a solution to learning, 
we really need to think of schools as systems that have a history to them and are in many ways tied to not just what happens in the classroom, but what happens in the outlying community. So I think one of the really fun things about the method that I used, comparative ethnographic methods, is that in getting to know the teachers and the students at the school, I could learn about the history of that school and how that history really shaped their, what it's like to, to teach there, um, what it's like to work with, with their students, and the ways in which those histories shape the meaning and value of digital tools. So um, to give you one example, um, there's a school in my study that I call, you know, everything is a pseudonym, Sheldon Junior High. Um, it serves a primarily middle-class Asian-American student body, uh, though most of the teachers are white, as is the case in most schools around the country. And, you know, the teachers there took on a really, really disciplinary, you know, tough, uh, punitive orientation to their students, and they use digital tools in such, you know, punitive ways as well. But in talking with teachers, you know, they described a history over 10 years of a huge demographic shift where the neighborhood used to be all kind of white middle-class families, but then those families left and there was a huge influx of Asian American immigrant families that came in and the teachers there really uh, found this shift to be quite unsettling. They, they described not feeling connected to the students in the way that they used to. And um, I do think, you know, as just one example that that kind of history of neighborhood shifts of kind of racial and immigration um, dynamics um, are all are all at play in shaping what it's like to be a teacher at that school, what the challenges are to teaching equitably and fairly and how they imagine just digital tools to be used at all. Like those digital tools are embedded in the history that that school uh, brings to it. Let's continue to talk a little bit more about the schools um, where you spent your time. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more, for those of us who haven't been in a classroom since they were students themselves, what kinds of devices are there now? What programs are students using, you know, uh, what are teachers asking yeah. them to use? And then what are students choosing to use on their own initiative? Sure. Yeah. Um, I think that if folks haven't been in the classroom in a little while, it's worth popping in in some capacity, perhaps all this after all this pandemic craziness is over. Um, but really, you know, teachers describe Internet access as like oxygen, basically, like for a lot of schools. School life shuts down if there's a, if there's a lapse in internet access because it's really embedded in a lot of school activities for schools increasingly. So you know the technology that schools will have include things like laptops and tablets and interactive smart boards and internet access uh, and software like Google Documents or Sheets or presentation software, programming software. Um, importantly, things like classroom management software, that's, um, those are basically uh, platforms where 
teachers and students and their families can interact, share assignments, grade assignments, send, you know, those grades out, uh, send messages to families and, and to students. Um, there's, you know, there's some organizations right now that are trying to determine which technologies are best for different ages, but I do, I do think the jury is still quite a bit out on whether that's ultimately effective or not. But despite this, though, I would say um, middle school in particular, uh, grades five through eight, roughly speaking, is increasingly targeted as a time to teach digital skills. And so, you know, we see we see in tandem a lot of investments in uh, technology uh, access. Um, and to your question about how this compares with what students, you know, what their experiences with technology is outside of school, you know, most students don't have things like a smart board, which is basically like a, a new wave blackboard. You know, it's like a computerized, you know, they're not really going to have that at home. Um, nor would they have experience using classroom management software. But most of the students in my study had a range of internet-connected laptops, tablets, smartphones, video games. Um, they certainly had a lot of experience playing with technologies online, though, um, you know, one of the things I find is that whether these experiences playing around with technology mattered to teachers at school really depended on the school. Yeah, it reminds me of the anecdote you used to, to begin your book uh, about two students in two schools watching music videos. Can you share what happened in those situations and your opinion on the teachers' different responses? Totally. Uh, you, know, you know, again, with this method of comparative ethnographic work, you can get these really rich um, stories that you can tell from just what school life is like. And um, at one school, which I call Heathcliff Academy, this is the school serving mostly wealthy and white kids. I was observing a class where these students were working independently on a news story assignment. They had to create a little presentation on an app called Keynote um, which is kind of like PowerPoint, basically, on it that they can use on a tablet. And they had to create a news story, uh, a presentation about a news story that they found out there in the world. And as I was watching these students independently work, all of a sudden I heard a pop beat blast from one of the students' iPads, and it was, you know, none other than Katy Perry. And you know, personally, I panicked a little bit because, you know, I'm like, oh, no, what's going to happen? Is, is the teacher going to get upset? And instead, the teacher kind of like joked about it. It became, you know, something to laugh about in the classroom. And ultimately, the teacher encouraged the student to, you know, include the music video as part of their project. Um, you know, to kind of tell the story in, in a way that was engaging to them but, you know, gave them a friendly minder to, and to everybody else to, you know, wear earphones and keep the noise down. Now, 40, you know, roughly 40 miles away at Sheldon Junior High, this is the school serving mostly middle-class Asian-American students, I was observing a, a music class. So it was straight up like a computer lab where they were making music. They were able to use these pretty high-tech computers uh, to use music composition software to make a song. 
And so they were independently doing this work. They had noise canceling earphones on. I couldn't even hear any of the stuff that they were doing, even though I wanted to. And all you could really hear is just kind of them clicking away on their mouse as they dragged little music notes uh, to form their compositions. But I remember sitting in the back of the room and the teacher kind of quietly waved me over to her desk. And I, you know, walked over, looked at her screen and she, she, she was like, get a load of this, Matt. And essentially what I saw were all these tiny little boxes on the screen that were moving in real time. And what I realized is that they were, in, you know, in essence, little surveillance cameras. All of the students' computer screens were linked to this teacher's view in a way that not look, didn't look too different from, like, you know, uh, police cameras. Um, and she pointed at one, which she then expanded to show a music video that a student was watching. Uh, instead of just working on their assignment. And she told me to, you know, like, she was like, get a load of this. She stood up and yelled at the student for doing that. And the student was shocked, of course, because he didn't know that she was watching in that way and embarrassed and closed their music video. And I think these examples are really interesting for a few reasons. First, you know, in both cases, this was a creative activity that students were doing on their own time. Um, and in the latter example, it was explicitly a music activity. Both were examples of a music video coming up during the lesson, but teachers treated those appearances of music videos so differently. At Heathcliff, a music video was a cute moment that, you know, uh, everybody could laugh about. And ultimately, she was encouraged to include as part of her assignment. But at Sheldon, the music video was a sign instead of misbehavior. It was, an, it was a reason to be scolded publicly. And these weren't just one-off events. As part of my work, I learned that each school took on this approach as the go-to pedagogical practice. And, um, you know, it's not just, in my opinion, the technology that's doing it. Um, the reason why I selected schools that had similar technology available to them is that I wanted to kind of control the effect that different technologies, you know, might have on classroom experience. And really, as I got to know the schools and the teachers and the students, a lot of it had to do with teachers shared assumptions about what their student population needs um, and how they should be treated and in ways that are unfortunately, I think, shaped quite a bit by um, biases about student race and class, but also importantly, the workplace conditions that teachers experience day to day. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. And I was trying to imagine 
how that story may have played out at an earlier time. And I was thinking about stereotypical uh, student reading a comic book inside of their textbook during class and how in, in one school that may be interpreted as, again, kind of funny, something to laugh off, an opportunity to break the ice. Maybe even that teacher thinks the student's not being challenged enough. While in the other class, um, that student is uh, disciplined, maybe publicly for being off class, and then regarded as uh, a class clown or lazy, whatever. So those things are happening. Uh, are they happening more often? Are there more opportunities for these kinds of uh, negative interactions between students and teachers because of the increase in available technology? Um, it, it also sounds like uh, surveillance is more of an issue nowadays. Uh, every screen and every mouse click is being monitored and, and that could lead to tension as, as well. Is, is that your impression that all of that stuff that was happening before just happens more now and the extent to which students are treated differently in different places than the divide widens? It's a great question. And I think that, you know, a big part of the story in this book is that whether technology is present or not, there are social forces at school that shape the value of, you know, how teachers see the value of kids play and messing around. And I think the comic book example is such a great one because I think if a kid at Sheldon Junior High was reading comic books instead of doing what the teacher wanted with them, you know, they would be punished in, in the same way. Um, which in many ways, I think, gets at um, understanding school as a system before technology even comes into the equation. However, I do think there is there are some notable differences about digital technology that some people have written about, um, which is that digital interactions uh, in how technologies are designed today leave digital footprints. And um, because of that, because, you know, uh, for, you know, for example, at Sheldon again, uh, you know, to access the wireless internet means that students uh, have to log in to their own individual account. And this is what the school decided to do so that everything they do online could be tracked to them. Like the capacity for digital technologies the use of them to leave digital footprints like that, I think opens up new avenues for teachers and administrators to extend their pedagogical philosophy to how they treat students. So one example of this that was very harrowing to me was, you know, because of all this tracking, um, they, uh, one teacher, you know, kind of told me proudly that he had printed out text message exchanges that two students were having without them knowing that they had collected that. And he brought in the two students into a room, showed them this printout to, quote unquote, teach them the hard way that, you know, Facebook is not the same outside of school as it is in school. Um, so in that way, I think, you know, the way digital technologies can be used, it's creating more means to keep tabs on students, to 
um, assert the perspective that teachers have and on, on, on how school life should be. Um, and depending on the school, you know, that could be pretty deleterious to, to students. Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about different disciplinary orientations. But, but first, um, this may seem like a simple word, but I want to ask you if you could define play and, you know, uh, what play might look like uh, in a middle school context and the different philosophies that underlie the different approaches that teachers take in responding to the play they see in their classrooms? So play is super interesting. Like I think, like you said, a lot of us are like, oh, it's like, you know, playing soccer or a video game or something like that. But among academics in particular, they're pretty obsessed with play as a concept. And it has theoretical roots that go all the way back to Plato, for example. Um, but how I kind of mix together all of these theories about it is I, I think of play as a source of kids' creativity. You know, when kids play with digital technologies, for example, they're messing around with digital tools to try to figure out how to use them for fun. And in the process, they sometimes come up with new ways to have fun with them. So consider, you know, the popular app TikTok. Um, you know, a lot of kids use these short form videos on apps like this to, you know, learn how to remix music and create their own video and remix the video to their own liking so that they can create and share it with their peers online um, that others can really enjoy. And some of these creations, you know, um, really are become cultural moments. And so, I think that in this way, play is essentially a source of innovation. Um, now, what I study in the book is if, you know, in this moment in time, young people are pretty broadly, you know, no matter their social origin, for the most part, using digital technologies to play, like social media use, creating digital images and video and audio, building worlds sometimes even within certain video games, I look at how school treats these very similar forms of digital play. And this different treatment of kids' play, um, meaning whether it be telling kids if it's helpful or school or instead if it's, if it's you know, worth punishing them for it is, you know, what, what, I call discipline, disciplining play. And I, I know that most people think of discipline as sending a kid to detention or something like that. But here's where I do draw on a bit of academic ease, which um, drawn from theorists like Mike, Michel Foucault and um, Samuel Bowles and Herbert Gintis. Um, discipline in, instead means a process of how you treat something like kids play. Do you see play as educationally valuable? Do you bring it, um, do you bring it and activate it for learning? Or do you instead dismiss it and shut it down? Um, that ultimately became a central focus of my book. And the teachers that are embracing play or shutting it down, uh, based on your interviews and observations, where do you think those dispositions come from? 
Yeah, this was a really tough question that uh, took quite a lot of time to figure out as I was writing the book. Because some of the findings, you know, uh, that schools differently discipline children, uh, you know, and what I find is that those disciplinary orientations basically set up different student populations to, to, you know, socialize them into different career paths. Like, you know, if you uh, discipline play by saying that what kids, you know, do for fun is essential, that their creativity is essential, you know, you are guiding them towards leadership positions because you're telling them that, you know, their ideas about how the world should work are what um, will help them get a job someday. Whereas at other schools, if you tell them, you know, your, your, create, your creativity, your innovative potential is irrelevant or threatening, that kind of sets them off on a different path. But figuring out where these perspectives come from, I think, has been an open question for some time in the research literature. And what I find is that it's actually, I think, a mixture of biases that teachers bring to school, as well as the workplace conditions that teachers inhabit. So something that research has shown, for example, even before my study, is that, you know, you know, white folks that typically lead schools have biases about uh, minoritized students and less privileged students. And what this literature has shown too is that those biases often take the form of multiple stereotypes. So, you know, it gets, it gets pretty dark, but you know, it's stuff we really need to talk about. Uh, in, in my study, I found that the white teachers at these schools would think of their Latinx students that they've taught at some schools as you know, hardworking immigrants, but then at other schools, they would describe them quite literally as like future gang members. Like, remember, these are middle school kids, and they would kind of exhibit these biases, even when talking to me about their student populations. Um, on the other hand, when it came to Asian American students they taught, they would variably describe them as model minorities, or elsewhere as these kind of tiger mom raised hackers. And so something that was really palpable were that these racial stereotypes were something that teachers brought with them to school. Now, something that was confusing to me was, well, how could it be that teachers would have such different stereotypes of these kids and which, which one would they use at the school? Like, w would they pick and choose? Uh, and I found no, like there was actually, they actually only had one that they thought made sense to their student body. And at Sheldon Junior High, they saw their Asian American students as hackers. At Cesar Chavez Middle School, they saw their Latinx students as hardworking immigrants. And I was, I had to try to figure out where this came from. And what I, what I found actually was that, um, you know, and the teachers helped guide me to this, to this answer. When I, I, I explained to them, why, why am I seeing this stuff? they basically pointed to what it's like to work on the job at these schools as something to look into. And I found indeed, as I think many people will reflect, will reflect that what it's like to do your work on the job has a really big impact on how you do your work. And at Sheldon, I found that teachers would use phrases like hellhole to describe their job. They talked about how other teachers were like mean girls. They wouldn't let them sit with them 
for lunch. And, you know, day-to-day life at this school, teachers saw each other as threatening. And what's interesting is that that threatening workplace extended into which, quote-unquote, appropriate stereotype made sense to describe their students. So rather than thinking of their Asian American students through a model minority lens, they saw them as this kind of threatening hacker. And so um, basically what I try to argue is that the workplace conditions teachers face, you know, variably as hostile or collaborative or elite serving um, really uh, play a very big role in shaping how teachers see their students and in ways that draw on the types of stereotypes they might bring with them to school. It sounds like there are a possible range of solutions to some of the issues that you've identified, including changes to our school systems, pedagogical practice, and of course the design of the learning technology in students' hands. Um, In your book, uh, what changes do you propose? So I think I think you're totally right. And any education researcher would say that there's no one thing that's going to fix schools. It really has to be a multifaceted approach. I think I think what I hope to contribute is that we really need to think of pedagogy as not just teaching kids how to do math or teaching them history. Pedagogy is also a process of teaching kids what it means to be a student, what it means to be a citizen in our society. And as I find, even as teachers are communicating, you know, how to do math or science, and they're using digital tools in the process, they are communicating to students beliefs about what is expected to them and what their potential is, and differently depending on the race and class of their student body. Um, and so I think the solutions to that are a bit tricky. I think on the one hand, teachers really need to confront and address their own racial and class biases. But to do that, I think they also need workplace environments that are supportive and conducive to this challenging introspection. And I, I do think that uses of technology will shift when these biases and workplace conditions are addressed. But Um, You know, another idea I think that could be interesting to explore specifically on the tech side is that schools could really develop a thoughtful technology plan. Um, Some of the work I'm doing with a colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Cassidy Puckett, uh, is looking at, you know, just whether schools even give a lot of thought to how they will use all these technologies that they're purchasing. Um, and this could be an opportunity to assess and unpack how racial or class biases might shape why they're taking the approach they are with technology. Like, why might we be taking such a punitive, like, police state approach to technology use in school and instead maybe develop a technology plan that thinks instead of, like, what are kids' interests with technologies and how can we use those interests to create learning experiences around them? I think uh, when I started teaching about 10 years ago, some technologists spoke of access as sort of the magic bullet for beginning to address the inequalities in our society. What we need is more iPads in schools, more internet access, et cetera. Is it your sense that their confidence in access 
um, has has waned, and they are now open to uh, other possible solutions, like some of those you just mentioned. I I'm not sure. I think I think that you know something we call techno utopianism, this kind of idea that technologies will fix everything. That's it's something that's existed for a long time, and not just in the digital age and other uh, eras of of technological shift. But I do think a lot of this has to do with an assumption many of us share in society, which um, scholars refer to as technological determinism. It basically means that many of us believe technologies will directly affect people in and of themselves. Like technology will cause learning or cause addiction or cause social unrest. It's a somewhat simple conceptual solution to actually quite murky problems that may or may not have anything to do with technology that we face in society. When, you know, I think the real truth that many of us researchers argue in our work is that we forget that technologies are built by people and they're used by people. People create solutions and people create obstacles to equity with or without technology. And so the solutions and the problems I see in the schools I study, um, I think are really in many ways deeply shaped by histories of race and racism, classism, workplace conditions teachers face. And so um, I think, you know, we all could do a bit of work to recenter discussion of technology around those issues and how our uses of technology are connected to those issues as a way to solve inequities. How does your research inform the way you view uh, changes to schooling that have happened in the past several months amidst the COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, I'm getting this question a lot and it's, it's really important. I think, I think, you know, at the time of my study, a lot of the questions were about whether or not technology should even be in the classroom. Like, should we allow cell phones and things like that? And fast forward to today, where it's almost a completely different game, where it's, it's technology is essential for many students to even have a classroom. So I think to that end, kind of bringing it back to the digital divides, the three digital divides, I do think different from my study, the access divide has been exacerbated. You know, even though a lot of kids, no matter where they're from, no matter their origin, have cell phones and internet connected video games, I think, I think the types of technology and the strength of the internet needed to participate in class online is a much higher threshold and we're seeing inequities across the country. I mean, I've had students tell me and teachers tell me about their students that to be able to join Zoom class, they've had to go to a fast food restaurant parking lot to get their internet access. Like I think I think this underscores that digital technology and internet access is really a public good. It's something people should have to participate in society and we should think of it in that way. At the same time, I think because of the pandemic, like we've seen just how teachers do not feel safe everywhere, um, whether they're expected to go into the classroom and, and 
put themselves at risk, put their students at risk. To me, if I were to draw it back to my work, that might suggest that actually they feel that their workplaces are not very supportive environments to do their work. And even though scholars argue that online teaching can be really awesome, and I know a lot of people kind of roll their eyes at this, like in the right condition, online schooling can be really great, which I know a lot of people might roll their eyes at at the thought of it, but it, it can actually be a lot of fun. But it will, online learning will never really be great if teachers don't feel supported, if they don't have the training to do this, these kinds of online experiences, and if they don't feel feel, you know, safe and supported in their work. And so to kind of root it back to what I find, you know, is that at workplaces where teachers do not feel supported, their teaching will not be the same as if it were more collaborative, if it were more supportive. And so I think that's a big piece of it. But one kind of final note on this that I do think applies from my work to today, which is that I think the third divide is, you know, unequal use of digital technologies. And in a world right now where more and more students have to go to school through Zoom, for example, I'm very worried by news stories I've heard of schools requiring dress codes of students as if, you know, all of us aren't wearing pajamas in some capacity while we're working from home, you know, and we're holding students to these kind of strange conditions or um, other news articles I've read about uh, teachers using surveillance tools to try to track students' eye movements to make sure that they're not cheating while taking an exam um, remotely. Um, my guess is, is that these expectations are not being held to wealthier white students and that they're very likely disproportionately being used um, on students of color and students from low-income circumstances. And so um, I, do, I do worry quite a bit about all aspects of the digital divide and um, really hope that, you know, we can think critically about it and really just support students and teachers navigating this really difficult time. If readers could have just one takeaway from digital divisions, what would you hope it would be? I think I would hope that people could see that kids are, first of all, awesome, innovative, and creative. No matter where kids come from, no matter who they are, they're creative beings. But schools differently set the terms for whether those creative impulses are seen as valuable or not at school, with or without technology. And unfortunately, uh, schools do this differently by the race and class of their student population. So I hope that readers can really see that there's a lot of potential to help kids grow and learn in ways that are centered on their interests online. Um, but I think schools need to do a bit of work to unpack whether and why they treat kids' creativity so differently in the hope that we can encourage kids to become, um, you know, innovators and, and uh, contributors to our society uh, well into adulthood. 
What are three other books you would recommend to our listeners who have enjoyed your work and our conversation today? Wow, there's a lot of really good stuff out there. Um, I would say um, one of my favorite books is Larry Cuban's Teachers and Machines. That's a really, really good one. Um, another one is um, Paul Willis's Learning to Labor. That's another uh, really good one. Uh, doesn't quite have as much to do with technology, but uh, is very related, I think. And then a third one I might recommend is um, Prudence Carter's book, Keeping It Real. That's a, that's another really good one that unpacks uh, race and class in, in day-to-day school life. So those would be the three that I would suggest. Finally, can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on now and how our listeners can follow your work? Sure. So I'm still writing a bit on education, but um, now that I'm at a researcher at Google and at YouTube, I'm actually studying YouTubers. I'm studying uh, influencers. I'm trying to figure out, you know, how is it that they come to tell the stories that they do in their videos? Um, what do their viewers think of them? Um, and I know, uh, you know, the topic of influencers is something that more and more people are thinking about. Something I was really shocked by was that, the, you know, uh, there was a survey that came out, I think last year, that showed that young people today rank becoming a YouTuber as higher on their career aspirations than becoming an astronaut or a teacher. And so I'm really kind of curious to kind of unpack what influencers do and how they do their work and what the reception is like. For folks interested in following some of my work, I think Twitter is probably the easiest. Uh, you can find me at um, M Raffalo, my last name, M-R-A-F-A-L-O-W. Well, Matt, I, I will be following you on Twitter and I'm excited to learn more about what you learn about YouTube and uh, why kids want to be YouTubers so much. Thank you for being on the show today. Uh, I, I really enjoyed our conversation. Likewise, this was great. Thanks for having me. 